For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So, yeah, we've been going through this. Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's around the time of this Feast of Tabernacle or Feast of Booths. And uh, he's been kind of popping up to preach. And there's these large crowds. And then the Pharisees get mobilized because they don't like him teaching. And so there's this battle that keeps going back and forth. They'd like to, you know, discredit him. They'd like to, you know, catch him in a, in a, in a, in a compromising situation. Or they'd just like to kill him. Whatever they can do to get rid of him. And he just keeps popping up and taking them on. And then kind of melting into the background and going away. And then, you know, they just keep trying to figure out what's going on with him. So again, he's in Jerusalem during this time. He's walking around. And we read in John chapter 9, verse 1, that as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, which just means teacher, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents that he would be born blind? And wow, that's an awful question, isn't it? And you can see that, you know, what they're reflecting is something that was uh, a part of the, the teaching in this day. This was a debate where people were rabbis and teachers and scholars were sort of having this discussion. You know, obviously, you know, this is judgment. This is punishment somehow. And so who, who messed up? If you're born uh, with uh, blindness or, or a problem that everyone else isn't born with, that must be that someone sinned. Who is it? And so it's this bizarre question. And they're saying, you know, there's two options on the table. Did, they, did God make this man born blind because his parents made him mad? Or did he make God mad in the womb? Was he, you know, somehow sinning in the womb and God, you know, struck him blind as a result of his rebellion? And, you know, what we want to ask here is, is, is there a third option? Because neither of those really fit with the character of God that we see, that the way that God works. And so, you know, is that, is that the only answer to these things? And one of the interesting things about this is it kind of relates to uh, a popular Eastern notion of karma. You know, it's like if you do something bad, something bad will happen to you. And does the Bible hold out this idea of karma? Does the Bible agree with karma? How does karma work? And uh, if you just go to Encyclopedia Britannica, you can look and see the official, you know, definition of karma. Karma, Sanskrit karman, means acts, to do something. Palikama in Indian religion and philosophy, the universal causal law by which good or bad actions determine the future modes of an individual's existence. Karma represents the ethical dimension of the process of rebirth, samsara, belief in which is generally shared among the religious traditions of India. Indian soteriologies, well, that just means theories of salvation, posit that future births and life situations will be conditioned by actions performed during one's present life, which itself has been conditioned by the accumulated effects of actions performed in previous lives. The doctrine of karma thus directs adherents of Indian religions toward their common goal, release or moksha from the cycle of rebirth and death. Karma thus serves two main functions within Indian moral philosophy. It provides the major motivation to live a moral life 
and it serves as the primary explanation for the existence of evil. And so we're familiar, you know, sort of with the idea of karma. It's basically treat others well, be good and do nice things, or else bad things will happen to you, whether that's in this life or the next. Sort of what goes around comes around. And there's something really attractive about that. You know, on, on, the, on the surface, you know, I think that we, whether you're from an Eastern philosophy or even, you know, these guys have no knowledge of, you know, the, the uh, Hindu practice of karma. But in Pharisaical Judaism, they're very legalistic, which is what this is. And what we mean by legalistic is it's an action-reaction uh, law. And so you can rest assured if someone treats you badly, they're going to get theirs, whether it's in this life or the next one. And there's sort of like a feeling that we get when we think about that. We're like, yeah. You know, it's like there is no injustice. Like one way or the other, you know, people will get theirs in the way they treat other people. That seems right to us. That what goes around comes around. And on that level, it is very satisfying. And you can see why the Pharisees of Jesus' day are talking about this. Because they're trying to look at something that seems unjust, aren't they? A baby born blind. And, it, and what they're concluding is, well, it must be his fault or his parents' fault. Because God is just. But see, that's part of the problem with this line of thinking. Whether you're talking about karma or uh, legalism, is what you're saying is, if someone is sick, disabled, deformed, poor, abused, unlucky, if something bad happens to someone, or if something bad happens to you, the conclusion that you're supposed to draw from this is, it's because you deserve it. And that becomes a real problem if you think about it. If you're looking out there in the world and you see poor people who are suffering and starving, and you're like, well, they must have done something in this life or the next life because they deserve it. And when you live that out to its logical conclusion, what you get is something like the caste system, which says, you know, that there are people who are at different levels of good fortune and misfortune, and that the people who are misfortunate, who are poor, who are suffering, who have diseases and those kinds of things, if you help someone who is suffering, you're interfering with karmic justice, aren't you? And so the result of this kind of thinking tends to be, I'm not going to move toward people who are suffering because they deserve the suffering that they get. And you could see also the impact that it would have on you as you're trying to figure out if you're in the middle of incredible suffering and you're saying, why is this happening to me? The answer is because you deserve it. And all of a sudden it doesn't seem so just, does it? And so that's the problem with this is, you know, this idea that uh, it actually encourages people to ignore the suffering in others. And so the Pharisees and, and the teachings of, of the Pharisees at this time are sort of wrapped up in this kind of question, and they're coming to this conclusion. Now, they don't believe in reincarnation. The Bible's clear that we live one life. So that's where the whole, it must be their parents sin. They didn't sin in a previous life. It must be... They either send in the womb or their parents send, and that's why this guy is born blind. And so his disciples are reflecting sort of the debate uh, that was happening in their day about how to deal with injustice in the world, and these conclusions are pretty unsatisfying, aren't they? 
And so what we need is at least a third option. Tell me that God has some other answer for this than one of these two options. And we find scriptures like this in Ezekiel 18, 20. It says, the soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wickedness will be charged to him. So at least what this is saying is, is we, can, we can eliminate that option, you know, the idea that if your parents sin, you know, imagine what it would do to your household. What, imagine what it would do to you as a parent if your child were born with a problem you would be concluding, it's my fault, I did something. And imagine growing up in that household as that child who's born blind and being like, what did my parents do that this happened to me? Not a very healthy family dynamic created by this. And so Jesus does answer them in verse three. They're wondering about this and he says, it was neither this man who sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And so Jesus does give us a third answer. And at first glance, it's better for sure, right? But it seems kind of like he's saying, well, this guy was born blind so that I could heal him. And that's not entirely satisfactory either, right? I mean, this is a full-grown man. He was born blind. I don't know how many years you know, he's been living with blindness, but he's just been waiting around, and God did this to this man's life for this occasion? That's a little bit hard to see, and it's also especially hard when you start to see how God, the attitude of God and the heart of God toward people who are suffering. It's not a super satisfactory answer. What I think that we're seeing here is, is this isn't Jesus explaining why this man was born blind. What Jesus is doing is he's showing them and giving them an example of, of the attitude that we should have toward suffering in others. And so the way that I read this, the way that I understand this is, they're seeing this, they have these two options in their head, right? And they're saying, Jesus, which is it? Was the man sinning in the womb or was it his parents' sin? And Jesus says, you know why? It's because God has given us an opportunity today to serve. And that's the way that we should see suffering. Suffering is something that we should move toward. We shouldn't look at this person and determine that they are getting something that they deserve. We should look at this person and see an opportunity to love and serve them. And that is very consistent with the attitude that God has and the attitude that God wants us to have toward those who suffer. And karma, people get what they deserve. In this pharisaical, legalistic Judaism, this person is reaping the judgment for their sin. But what Jesus is saying is the suffering of others is an opportunity to comfort them, to move toward them in love. And that's what I'm about. That's my father's work, he says. And that's why we're here. And we need to do that work as long as we can and as much as we can. Because the opportunity to do something about things like this sits here right in front of us. And when we study God's perspective on suffering, we find things like Jesus is talking about how when you serve people who suffer, how he views that as God. In Matthew 25, uh, 34 and 36, he tells this, this parable where he says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And his people who are listening to him say that. They said, when did we do that for you? And he says, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it for any one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it for me. And so what God is doing is is he's bringing in a completely different paradigm than this. These people get what they deserve. And he says, these are God's children whom he loves. And when you move toward them in love, when you help somebody who's sick, when you feed somebody who's hungry, when you clothe somebody who's naked, it's just like you're doing it for me, God says. That's how connected I am to these people. This is how I feel when I see suffering. I want you as my children, to move toward one another and do something about it. Psalm 68, 5 through 6 says, God is a father to the fatherless, a judge for the widows, is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. God moves towards people who are in bad circumstances, and he does something about it. And he wants those who follow him to do something about it. Proverbs 14.31, he who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. That's the picture that is radically different about the God of the Bible. Is we look at suffering and we don't say, oh man, I wonder what they did to deserve that. We look at it and say, God has placed me here for a time such as this where I can do something to help people who are in need. And that is how I love God. As believers, we often live and we, you know, we get into this mindset of we start to dawn on us what, how God has blessed us, how you know, he died for us, how he's given us eternal life, how he's given us a, a leading and a guidance through his word to make decisions that has resulted in blessings that we could never even have imagined before we knew God. And we get to that point where we're like, God, what can I do for you? How can I show my gratitude to you? And God says, love my children. You know, as a parent, what more could someone do to engender affection in my heart than to help my kid if they needed something? I mean, how, would you, how do you feel about people who move toward your children when they're suffering? You're like, oh, you're amazing. How, how loved do you feel by that? God says, that's how I feel when you as my followers move towards others who are suffering. Leviticus 19.14, you shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. The way you treat these people is a reflection of your Care and your understanding of who I am, says God. And that is something that can change the world. People understanding that and wanting to do something about that. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, no, he didn't do anything to deserve it. But this is an opportunity for us to show God's love to this person. So he says, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And when he said this, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and applied the clay to the man's eyes, and said to him, go wash in the pool of Shalom, which is translated scent. And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. And so we have another one of these incredible pictures 
with this more evidence, is Christ an accurate representation of God? That's what the whole debate is between the Pharisees and Jesus. The Pharisees are saying, you're a fraud, you have a demon, you're a trickster, you're a huckster, you're a liar, and you're misrepresenting God. And the Pharisees' conclusion in situations like this is this man who born blind, was born blind is reaping the consequences of some decision, whether it was his or his parents'. And Jesus says, that's not who I am. That is not what God is like. This, you're completely misunderstanding the heart and the nature of who God is. What God is is he moves toward people who are suffering, and he does it with compassion, just like I'm doing here. He's doing something only God could do. You know, we might see somebody who was born blind or see somebody in need, and we might not be able to help them in the way that Jesus helps them here. But he is doing this in a way that it's, it's manifesting. It creates that question. If you're watching Jesus, if you're one of his disciples or you're one of the Pharisees or put yourself in the shoes of this man, it definitely raises the question, who is this person who can make somebody born blind see? And what, do, what are the implications of who this person is? And he's fulfilling the role that God said he would play when he would come and dwell among us. Isaiah 35, three through six, encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Again, we see how God wants us to look at the suffering in the world. He says, say to the anxious in heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. That picture of this is, this is God's vision for setting things right. And there will come a day, which is what this is talking about, where God will set everything right with everybody everywhere. But in the meantime... He sent us out to make a difference and to help those in need. So we get back into John 9 and we get into verse 8. And we see a pattern that we've seen developing quite a bit. This creates a stir, right? And the whole question is, is, is this real? Did he really heal this person? Uh, what does it mean? What does it say about who Jesus is? And we read in verse 8, Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw this man as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? And others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he looks like him. And he kept saying, no, it's me. I'm the one, born blind. Now I see. And so they were saying to them, how, how were your eyes opened? And he said, the man who was called Jesus spit in the dirt, made some mud, put it in my face, and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So I went and I washed and I received sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? And he's like, oh, oh, I don't know where he went, but I know it was him. And so, of course, they brought the man, the Pharisees hear about this, and they're like, bring this guy here. And so they bring the man before the Pharisees, the man who was formerly blind. And it was the Sabbath on the day that Jesus made the clay to open his eyes. We've seen this again. We're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. It's up to interpretation. What is work? Jesus keeps healing people on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are like, you're not supposed to work. And Jesus is like, mm, I'll decide what's work and what's not. 
And the Pharisees were saying to the man and asking him again how he received his sight. How did this work? And he said, I applied clay to my eyes. He applied clay to my eyes. I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. This Jesus can't be the Messiah. He doesn't keep the Sabbath the way that we think you should keep the Sabbath. But the others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? Good question. How can a man who's against God, who God would not be behind, do things that only God can do? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. And the Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been born blind and received his sight. They're like, no, 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 no. This is a, this is a setup, right? They got someone who looked like the guy who used to beg. They probably, you know, just shipped him out and brought this other guy in. And this is all an elaborate setup to make us think that Jesus can make blind people see, but he can't really make blind people see. So the Jews did not believe it of him that he'd been born blind and had received sights until they called the parents of the very one who received his sight. Not bad. That's, that'd be the way to get to the bottom of it, right? Bring in mom and dad. Was this, is this your son who was born blind? And they questioned the parents, verse 19, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? And if so, then how does he see now? And you can tell the parents are like, uh, they answered and said, well, we know that this is our son. That much we know. And we also know that he was born blind. That is also true. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this, John tells us, because they were afraid of the Pharisees. But the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue, to be disfellowshipped, right? You're no longer allowed to worship with us if you say that Jesus is the Messiah. And they're kind of walking on eggshells here. John says, for this reason, the parents said he is of age, ask him. Which is pretty telling, really. You know, again, as a parent, you might put yourself in that situation. And you look at the players here. You have the man who was born blind. And, you know, what does he know? He only knows what he experienced, right? The only claims he are making, he's making is, I was born blind. Jesus came along, put mud in my eyes, told me to wash in the pool. Now I see. That much I know. And they're like, who is he? And he's like, he's a prophet. I don't, I, I see. That's what I know. They're like, bring in the parents. And the parents, you know, are fearful. This guy, in an awesome way, is sticking to his guns, right? He could fold. Remember the guy at the pool of Siloam who got healed and just immediately threw Jesus under the bus? They're like, he did it. He told me to carry my mat on the Sabbath after he healed my legs. And then he went and found the Pharisees and was like, he's in the temple, get him. And this guy, in a really cool way, is just saying, let's just, let's just stay with the facts. Let's just keep the truth. You know, you, he did this. The parents, on the other hand, are kind of throwing him under the bus, which really gives you a sense of the threat that the Pharisees would represent. And the idea of being thrown out of the synagogue, what that means to his people, they're like, look, he's over 18, he makes his own decisions. 
Yes, he was born blind. Yes, now he sees. Anything more than that, ask him because we don't know. Wow. These guys were scary, these Pharisees. And what are they doing? They're looking at this situation, and they're not, once again, rejoicing at the miracle for their man. At no point do they say, how wonderful for you. Member of our community, member of our synagogue, who was born blind but now sees. They're not like, praise God. We may have some theological issues with this guy, but we're so glad for you. How wonderful. None of that. Right? It's immediately to, this happened on the Sabbath. This happened because Jesus was involved And this must mean that some trick is at hand because there is no way that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Who here is blind is the real question. You see, they're only concerned with the evidence that fits with their presuppositions. They have just missed a miracle of the first order. And have completely not even connected with them the power and the meaning and the the joy for this man. They are blind to what Jesus is doing, but they are very keen, very acutely observing the things that he is doing that represents a threat to their thinking. So we read in verse 24, they bring him back for a second interview. They called the man who had been born blind and said, give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And the man answered and said, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And so they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He's like, well, I told you already. Did you not listen? Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? I love this guy, right? And they reviled him. They said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as far as this man, we don't know where he's from. And the man replies and says to them, well... Here's an amazing thing, guys, that you don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. (laughs) Woo! (laughs) Yeah, that is just like, wow, this guy is awesome, you know? By the way, something really bad has happened. I figured out that you can put GIFs in PowerPoints. GIFs, GIFs, I know there's a debate. So here's the thing. I'm going to need some accountability on this because I love, I love GIFs. And I just discovered this week it was something I could do. But anyway, back to this guy in the Bible, right? He is just like, just lowering the boom. He is the one that's supposed to be blind. And they are supposed to be the wise religious leaders, the scholars of the Bible, the ones who understand these things. And he is just laying some truth on them that is so good, so real. 
And we read in 31, he says, uh, we know that God does not hear sinners. Listen to what this man's saying to the Pharisees. We know that God doesn't hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man, Jesus, were not from God, he could do nothing. Wow, he's got it. He's really, he must have been hanging out and begging by the temple and getting some word of God in his life, right? And then these guys, how do they reply? They answered, you were born entirely in sin and you're teaching us. And they put him out of the synagogue. The blindness of the Pharisees is profound, isn't it? This guy is making a very rational, reasonable, biblical argument. And they just can't see because they hate Jesus so much. So he's put out of the synagogue for what? For being healed, for being honest, and being awesome. (laughs) That's why he's being kicked out of the church by these guys. And so we go on in John 9, and we get to verse 35, and Jesus hears about this, that they had put the man out, and finding him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? My, uh, My heart is wide open, Jesus. Tell me what the truth is, because I have seen in you something that has convinced me that you represent God. Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you have both seen him, and he is the one talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard the things he said to him and said, we are not blind too, are we? What's hilarious about this, I mean, put this scene in your head. The guy gets kicked out of the synagogue. Jesus comes up and he's like, you know, it's them that are blind. And they're like, we can hear you. (laughs) We're still here. It's, it's kind of incredible. The Pharisees are in earshot of this conversation. And Jesus turns to them and says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. And that, and that, he really peels back and gets to the root of the problem with the Pharisees, doesn't he? Look at what he says. He says, if you were blind, if you didn't know any better and you lacked the faculties to understand what was going on, I wouldn't blame you. But the fact that you think that you see is why you and I have such a problem. If you would just admit that you don't know what you think you know and be open-minded and teachable, Everything would be different between us. But you have refused to do that. You have refused. You have blindly rejected all the evidence that I have given you. And yet you claim that you know who God is. These Pharisees, they just won't admit that they have something to learn. So what's the takeaway here? What what can we, you know, as 21st century uh, Americans, what can we take away from this? Well, I think one of the big things is we all have blind spots. 
And it's important that we know that. And not just that we theoretically know that, but that is in the forefront of the way that we live our lives. In a big way, that's what humility is, is knowing that there, there are things that are wrong with me that I understand, and I want to change, and I want to be open, and I want to grow as a person, but there are also things that are wrong with me that I don't understand. There are things that everyone around me sees about me that I can't see, and they have been there bothering people for my entire life. And sometimes people come to me with those things. They see these things. And how am I going to react to people when they try to bring them up? Am I going to be like the Pharisees who refuse to accept these things that someone else is trying to help me see so that I can add that to the list of the things that I know about and that I want to grow? I love in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, it says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any hurtful way within me and lead me in an everlasting way. What a beautiful picture that is of submission to God. I know, Lord, that there are things in me that are evil and wicked that I don't even know about. And I ask you, God, to show me and to reveal to me what those things are so that I can follow you in growing as a person. Wow. If everybody had that in their heart, what a different world we would live in, how our relationships would be different. Our blind spots can keep us from Christ. That's what's happening with these Pharisees. And so maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you're wondering about this and you're looking at this. And the thing I would challenge you to think about this morning is what are your presuppositions. What are the things about Christianity that you think you know that you may not actually know? That there there is a lot of misinformation out there about who Jesus is, who the Bible is, and, and who we are as Christians. And so, you know, you need to be self aware that there might be things that you think you know that you don't. And to turn to God, whether you believe him or not, and say, help, if you're there, God, help me to see the truth. Open my eyes if I'm blind. And if I have wrong thinking about you, put people in my life and move in my life in a way that will help me to see the truth of who you are. Is a prayer that we guarantee God will answer. That is the kind of prayer that God is sitting on the edge of his throne, looking in your life, saying, put me in the game. Just, just, I will move in your life if you will let me in. And then, of course, there's the next step, which is, as we see those things, to come and invite God, invite Jesus Christ into our lives. To recognize that those blind spots, the ones that we know about and the ones that we don't, are causing pain and suffering and evil in the lives of the people that we're around and especially in the lives of the people that we care about most and that we can't change without Christ coming into our lives and that God has provided Jesus to not only show us these things but to take the punishment for the evil that we've perpetrated and to pour it out on Christ so that we could be made clean Not that we would become perfect at that moment, but that we would become reconciled to God. The things that stand between us can be removed by Christ, and that can happen as an act of faith 
where we turn to him and say, I need you in my life. I need Jesus' death on the cross to apply to me. Then, of course, those of us who have done that also know that our blind spots, while we are saved, while we are guaranteed eternal life with God, while Jesus has paid not only for the sins we know about, but the sins that we don't, that those blind spots then, they don't keep us from a relationship with God, but they can keep us from spiritual growth. Those are the things that can really slow down the process. I remember years ago as a a young believer talking with uh, a a very wise uh, Christian who had been a Christian for 50 years and just saying, I just want to speed it up. I just want to, I want to, I'm tired of failing and I just want to grow faster. And she said the most annoying thing to me ever, which was, God will go as fast as you will allow him. You can't speed God up, but you can slow him down. And that's the issue is you have to look at where are you resisting God? Because God will take you as far as you are able and willing and want to go, but it requires an openness, it requires a humility, and it requires the ability to see. And so those things are the challenge for us. This is why Christians are forgiven, but why we still do so many messed up things and why you know, we don't always represent God the way that we should is because we still have these blind spots. Hebrews 3.15 says, while it is today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like when they provoke me. And what God is saying is, is when you hear me pulling on your heartstrings, hey, there's something that needs to change. Don't stuff it away. Don't become calloused. But listen and open yourself up to me. And the more that you do that, the louder my voice will get in your life. The more clear my leading will be. But the more that you reject my leading in your life, the more you reject the word and the leading of the Holy Spirit, the more difficult it will be. The more blind you will become. That's the process of what we call sanctification or spiritual growth. Psalm 95, six through seven says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, all of us hear the voice of God, but it's become far too common for us to ignore it or to put it off. Oh, yes, Lord, I hear you. I'll I'll get to that someday. Yes, Lord, I hear you, but... Not right now. And we need to come before God again in humility and admit that we have hardened our hearts. I think another important takeaway here is there are times where we have to stand against human authority, right? The Pharisees were the religious human authority in Jerusalem. And they are obviously not behaving in the best interest of God or in the best interest of this member of their congregation. The Bible makes it clear God is our leader, Colossians 1.18. He's the head of the church. It is God who we are responsible to. It also makes it clear that the word of God is our guide, that the highest authority for a believer is not a human authority, it's scripture. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. However, the Bible also does make it clear that God works through human leadership. God wants to work through us and he does put people in authority and that we need to work under that authority, be respectful of that authority. 
but only in the ways that it agrees with God and the scriptures. And that's the tension that we can live in. And if you're in a situation where it's very clear that the scriptures say one thing and your spiritual leaders are saying another, go with the scriptures. Go with what God says because he is the highest authority. Our human authorities have blind spots too. And it's good for those of us who wind up in places of spiritual authority. It's so important that we remember that we have blind spots and that if we're giving someone advice or that we're telling them something that would be helpful for their spiritual life and they can show us a scripture that shows that we're wrong, that at that moment, no matter how unspiritual they are, no matter how much of a pain they have been, to take that moment and remember the Pharisees and say, you know what? You're right, I can't, get, I can't disagree with the scriptures here. And I, I have to agree with you that I've been wrong. That is how God is supposed to work through biblical authority. I remember as a young Christian in our church, I was in a home church, a small group, and I had a home church leader that I argued with all the time. Uh, it was mostly because I was hard to work with. But she had her own issues too. And she said to me one day, we were in one of these arguments, and it was on sort of a non-black and white issue. And she said, I'm the voice of, your li- of God in your life. You need to listen to me. And I just stopped, and I just said, you're a voice. You're a voice. You're not the voice. And uh, she wasn't a home church leader much longer after that. Not for that exact reason, but because she had been, become operating in a way that was going beyond the authority that we have as human leaders. That we are not the voice of God, but that God does work through the community of believers and that he does appoint human leaders to be in those positions. And so as we think about what it means to follow God, as we think about what it means to walk with God, the key here is to be open to the leadership of God, to the scriptures, and to move towards God and others. Because it's a messy, messy world where everybody has blind spots, except for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Yeah, we are... um constantly amazed as we study who you are, that it just always comes back better than we could have hoped for. And we see that again in this passage, and we see something compelling. We see something uh, that can change us. And we just ask God that uh, you'll, you'll help us to draw near to you. We pray that we could fill this room with people who used to not know you. Uh, and be sharing with our friends what we're learning about you and sharing with them about the way that you're changing our lives. We know that there's people in our lives, God, who desperately need you. And we just pray that you would give us the boldness and the wisdom and the love to help them see what it is that you're showing us. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.